0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 145. We'll begin and conclude the book of Habakkuk with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about seeing and believing. If the last episode focused on Nahum's account of the fall of Assyria, this episode is all about the empire that will fill the void, Babylon. And though Habakkuk starts out with a phrase that implies a new prophecy, quote, "the pronouncement made by the prophet blah blah blah, it, it really isn't a prophecy, but more like a complaint. I want to speak to you manager now, please shit. Or more like reportage about the state of affairs. Quote, Raiding and violence are before me. Strife continues and contention goes on. That is why decision fails and justice never emerges. For the villain hedges in the just man. Therefore, judgment emerges deformed. Oh, damn! And so I guess, to set things right, God offers a fix. Quote, For lo, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce, impetuous nation, who cross the earth's wide spaces to seize homes not of their own. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fleeter than wolves of the steppe. Their steeds gallop, their steeds come flying from afar like vultures rushing toward food. And Habakkuk goes on and on about how terrible and awful the Babylonians are and then wonders aloud why God would see fit to unleash these animals on the world. Quote, Why do you countenance treachery and stand by idle while the one in the wrong devours the one in the right? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler. He has fished them up in with a line, pulled them in with a trawl, and gathered them in his net. That is why he rejoices and is glad." Chapter 2, Habakkuk still waits for an answer, quote, I will stand on my watch, take up my station at the post, and wait to see what he will say to me, what he will reply to my complaint. To which God replies, Nah, I'm just kidding. Habakkuk tells us that God answered him, quote, For there is yet a prophecy for a set term, a truthful witness for a time that will come. Even if it tarries, wait for it still, for it will surely come without delay. So settle in for the long game because the short game is gonna suck. And in the meantime, the nations of the world conquered by the Babylonians, the Jews included, will suffer and perhaps turn to late night hosts for solace. Quote, surely all these shall pronounce a satire against him, a pointed epigram concerning him. They shall say, ah, you who pile up what is not yours, how much longer and make ever heavier your load of indebtedness. But the suffering will continue, and even though the Babylonian empire seems indestructible, it too will succumb to its own vices and crumble. And so Habakkuk offers up a prayer in chapter 3, quote, in the mode of Shigyonot. It's not clear what Shigyonot is. Some of the medieval commentators, like even Ezra, take it to mean consolation. So, okay. And being addressed to God, Habakkuk offers praise and flattery, recounting the miracles of the past and God's immense strength. But then he wonders aloud, quote, Though the fig tree does not bud and no yield is on the vine, though the olive crop has failed and the fields produce no grain, though sheep have vanished from the fold and no cattle are in the pen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, exult in the God who delivers me. It's as if he's not sure that he'll ever emerge from despair, but he has faith that in the end it will work out. Quote, My Lord God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and lets me stride upon the heights for the leader with instrumental music. And on that optimistic note, here endeth the lesson. First, I got to say that of all the 12 minor prophets and the three major prophets, Habakkuk has the best name. For Hebrew speakers, it sounds like the anomanopeic bakbuk, which means bottle, and you can almost hear the sound of the bottle, you know, emptying out as it's you know, as you're pouring out the liquid, bakbuk, bakbuk, bakbuk. But here we have chabak kuk, kuk kuk kuk, who's pouring out his rage on the people of Israel. Suffice to say, you don't see many babies being named Habakkuk these days. Now, contrary to all the other prophets we've read to date, there is not a word about Habakkuk's hometown or any biographical information. We can guess from what he's on about that he was alive during the collapse of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire in about 613 BCE with the sack of Nineveh. This puts him as being alive during the reign of Yoshiyahu, king of Judah, prophesizing during the period of, you know, around the same time as Yermiyahu and Yehezkel. We do have two weird-ass Midrashic sources about him, One that clearly predates the period of the Mishnah and Talmud, and one from a period much later on. The first comes from the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Tanakh, in the form of an outtake of the book of Daniel. So the Septuagint, like I said, the Greek translation adds a chapter 14 to the 13 chapter book. It's deuterocanonical, which literally means second canon. That is, we Jews do not consider it canon, but Catholics and Orthodox Christians do. Anyway, this story is known as Bell and the Dragon. It's set in the court of Cyrus, king of Persia, where Daniel, yes, that Daniel, is a, quote, companion to the king and was the most honored of all of his friends. This first part pits Daniel against the worshippers of the idol Bell, where Daniel proves to the king that the idol doesn't really eat the food that's left for him. But the priests sneak into the temple to consume the sacred meal. It's very sneaky. The second part involves a dragon. <laughs> Yes, a real-life dragon, which the Babylonians revered, but Daniel defeats by baking a barley cake filled with pitch, fat, and hair. The dragon eats it and explodes. This enrages the Babylonians, who demand that Daniel be thrown into a lion's den, which he is, but not only do the lions not eat him, quote... Now there was in Jewry a prophet called Habakkuk who made pottage and had broken bread in a bowl and was going into the field for to bring it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Go and carry the dinner that thou hast into Babylon unto Daniel who is in the lion's den. And Habakkuk said, Lord, I never saw Babylon, neither do I know where the den is. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown and bare him by the hair of his head and through the vehemency of his spirit set him in Babylon over the den." And Habakkuk cried, saying, O Daniel, Daniel, take the dinner which God hath sent thee. And Daniel said, Thou hast remembered me, O God, neither hast thou forsaken them that seek thee and love thee. So Daniel arose and did eat, and the angel of the Lord set Habakkuk in his own place again immediately. The only other source we have for Habakkuk comes from the Zohar, the Ur text of Jewish mysticism, which identifies Chabakuk as the son of the Shunammite woman whom Elisha resurrected from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. So for those of us preparing for the SAT verbal section, Elisha is to Chabakuk as Jesus is to... That's right, Lazarus. Okay, moving on. Habakkuk tells us straight up in chapter 1, quote, Look among the nations, observe well, and be utterly astounded, for a work is being wrought in your days which you would not believe if it were told. This last part of the verse has become a locution in modern Hebrew, lo yi uman ki It denotes something that's hard to believe but actually happens, but actually and factually did happen. This locution, lo yi uman ki supar," reminds me, of similar rhetorical devices I reviewed in the run-up to preparing for the GRE subject test in English, specifically Samuel Taylor Coleridge's notion of the suspension of disbelief or willing suspension of disbelief. Most broadly defined, it describes the state of mind of the reader who willingly suspends her critical faculties, sacrificing her grasp of realism and logic and believes something surreal for the sake of enjoyment. Coleridge wrote that if a writer could infuse a, quote, human interest and semblance of truth into a fantastic tale, the reader would suspend judgment concerning the implausibility of the narrative. He was right. Readers do it all the time. You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard. But the key takeaway here is that we all agree that the narrative in question is implausible and surreal and that the author is asking us to go along with it anyway. That narrative is fiction. No one is holding up today's New York Times or Washington Post or Toronto Star and asks us to go along with whatever fancy the writers are flying that day. That's not how newspapers work. Or do they? You are fake news. What the misguided American president is referring to there is not a suspension of disbelief vis-a-vis the mainstream press. What he's referring to is something else altogether. That is the Grosse Luge, otherwise known as the Big Lie. Coined by Adolf Hitler in his 1925 book Mein Kampf, Hitler described a lie so colossal that no one would believe that someone, quote, could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. He accused the Jews of doing this by their blaming Germany's loss in World War I on German General Erich Ludendorff, a prominent nationalist and Weimar-era antisemite. But of course, it doesn't take a Freudian psychoanalyst to suss out what Hitler was projecting. And one could say the same is true with the current president who also decries the Lügenpresse or lying press, also a Nazi-era concept, who produce fake news that seeks to discredit the current occupant of the White House and his policies. It's hard to make sense of how much of what the American president says because of his penchant for bullshittery, flights of fancy, word salads, lying, and other dissemblings. However, it all serves a single agenda. The American president wants you to accept that he's the best. America is winning and his policies are the best and his take is the correct one. And you should believe him because he says, believe me, an awful lot. Believe me. Believe me. believe me believe me believe me, believe me. believe me, believe me believe me, okay, believe me. But one should apply one's critical faculties in a democracy where one needs information in order to make good decisions. And when Habakkuk speaks to the people, he also wants them to accept a specific perspective and course of action. Except you're not being asked to set aside your critical faculties, you're being asked to look clearly and all the crazy ass stuff that's happening, the overturning of the world order, the prevailing of evil over good. And instead of saying to yourself, this isn't true, it's preposterous, Habakkuk says, I'm telling you, this is what's up, it's bad. It can be fixed. Here's how. Who are you going to believe? Me and what you see? Or something else? If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, would it kill you to check out Tanakhcast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts google play stitcher smart radio or soundcloud it's a small thing really but it will help other people who might be interested in some bible learning find this podcast or if you want to help in a bigger way support us at patreon just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the most high i thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in 2 weeks for episode 146 when we begin and complete the ninth book in the book of 12 with Zephaniah chapters 1 through 3.